the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show this Friday afternoon. Coming up, we've found a new case of Varroa mite, but it's uh, not a cause for concern. It's within the boundaries of what people were expecting. Also, a damning report card on the state's biodiversity offset scheme. There was actually nobody who came along and said that the system is working or that it was good. Um, really? No, re- nobody? <laughs> nobody. So not developers that are trying to use the system, not landholders who are trying to protect biodiversity on their land, not ecologists who are trying to apply the rules. We'll hear more about that uh, damning report card uh, lately from the uh, uh, shortly from the upper house, and uh, we'll also look at the flooding situation. We're hearing from the premier shortly. A press conference has just been held. We'll get the latest uh, announcements from the premier in regards to flooding, and also look at the flood situation around the uh, town of Burke. All that and a whole lot more coming up. Uh, a reminder too: you can always send us a text zero four six seven nine double two six eight four. That's a number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up, a new case of Varroa, this time in the Hunter Valley, is raising big questions about the origin of the outbreak in Australia here in New South Wales. The hive was infested by mites when bees were moved before the outbreak was discovered at the port of Newcastle. David Corton has the details. Varroa is a devastating pest that can decimate hives and reduce honey production significantly. Genomic testing shows that the mites originated in Central America, but it's not clear how they got into Australia. This latest case has proven that the port of Newcastle probably wasn't the point of entry. The Department of Primary Industries Incident Controller, Lloyd King, told Dan Cox and Jenny Bates on ABC Newcastle about this latest case. We're still trying to determine exactly what's occurred. Uh, but we believe that, um, like a, this person has a close relationship with a with a, a previously known infested premises. Um, now that we've actually gone out there and and tested that person's hives again, and they've turned up to be infested, we've we found out there are actually hives that were moved from that known infested premises in the last eight or nine months that we didn't previously know about. So does that mean that there was varroa at? that first property before the detection at the port of Newcastle? Oh, oh yes. Um, so we are, our sentinel hives in Newcastle in late June uh, detected the incursion. Um, we've since been swimming upstream to try and work out where that incursion originated. So we, we know that the first place that we found it was in the port of Newcastle. We're still pulling together how it got to that site where we first found it and then from where it's came. So the, right. the more surveillance we do in the purple zone and the, the more information we've gathered from the red zone through interviewing people gives us a very firm idea that that definitely wasn't the point of entry. Um, yeah, so ongoing surveillance will actually fill in the picture for us. Right. That has changed my impression of this whole situation, um, that we are, we now know that before the 22nd of June there was Varroa in the Hunter before it was identified at the port of Newcastle on the 22nd of June. So do we know where it came from yet or is it likely to have come from interstate or how does this happen? Um, well, we know it's not likely to have come from interstate because all of our, our other state uh, partners have also been doing a lot of surveillance as well. So we, we know that it somehow got into the 
you know, the, the, the lower hunter sometime in the last nine months. Um, and we, we actually have a genetic sequence of the mite that tells us that it originated from somewhere around Central America because this thing originally came from sort of Japan, Korea, that part of the world. But, uh, yeah, we still haven't pieced together exactly what the date was of the entry. But the more surveillance we do and the more cooperation we get from the bee industry, the more confident we are that we've actually got the thing contained and we're well on the way to eradicating New South Wales Apiarists Association President Steve Fuller told Kim Honan this is a worrying case, but he hasn't given up on eradicating the pests from Australia. At least we know it's a, it's a traceable link, which is, which is good. The sad part, though, is this has already been surveillanced already with alcohol washers, and now it's actually showing up positive to varroa mite. So, gee whiz, it makes me wonder, or it makes the industry really scared, of how many other ones out there with alcohol washers that have been clean that now need to go back through and have motorcycle strips in them. Yeah, how concerning is that for the industry? That's really concerning. The only thing that could be in our favour is we have the purple zone, which is the surveillance, so you're not allowed to bring them into the blue zone. So we do find it in the purple zone, which my understanding is this was in a purple zone, then we've got a chance of keeping it contained. What does this mean for the varroa mite response? Is it time to stop controlling this parasite and let it become endemic? Uh, at this point in time, I, I think it's still a bit too early to move to management, but it's going to make them rethink the whole, thing, whole system. The state's Agriculture Minister, Jugald Saunders, told Michael Condon the government is extending the red zone for controlling the outbreak and more bees will have to be euthanised. But it's not bees that are flying between right. hives necessarily. It's normally that people have moved to hive and it may not show up straight away as being infected, but that's why we have to keep doing that testing. And, and you know, that's why in some of the areas that will, um, that will come back, it'll take a couple of years because we need to keep retesting and making sure that nothing has slipped through the net. So that's what happened in this case. Uh, not unexpected given it is linked uh, to movements from an original, uh, original infected premises that now means that there's an extended red zone around that particular area, which will incorporate some, some more beekeepers that will now have to have hives euthanised. What it does show is that the surveillance that we're doing works, the, the sticky mats we're using, the alcohol washes we're doing, um, it's not a significant infestation at this particular site. It's a, it's a small one, but it just does show we need to keep doing what we have been doing. Dougal Saunders, the Agriculture Minister, ending that report by David Clawton. It's 12 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. The New South Wales Biodiversity Offset Scheme that allows developers to uh, damage the animal habitat, uh, habitat in one part of New South Wales and then pay to protect it elsewhere has been found to lack transparency, raising concerns it's failing to deliver meaningful biodiversity protection. The market-based scheme, introduced in 2016, has been criticised as being vulnerable to corruption and manipulation as well. Greens MP Sue Higginson, chair of the Biodiversity Offsets Committee, told the ABC's Bruce McKenzie that no one she's heard from thinks the scheme is working and the Department of Planning and Environment should be reviewing and redesigning the scheme. Yeah, look, the evidence was uh, pretty overwhelming um, and that was, you know, after a few days of hearing hundreds of submissions. Um, 
There was actually nobody who came along and said that the system is working or that it was good. Um, really? No, re- nobody? <laughs> nobody. So not developers that are trying to use the system, not landholders who are trying to protect biodiversity on their land, not ecologists who are trying to apply the rules and, um, and you know, really uh, government uh, bureaucrats and members of the team came along and sort of said, look, we get it. It's a mess and it's pretty complicated. So it was quite overwhelming. And look, it, it's, an, it's a complicated scheme. Yeah, and, and maybe that's why nobody's particularly satisfied with it. Uh, how long has it been running and, and what were the big problems or, or maybe even, can I dare I say, the simplest problems that people identified? Yeah, look, I think it is. I think it actually does come down to the simple problems um, and I think that that was identified too. So we've had this scheme since around 2016. It replaced a sort of very informal scheme that we were using. Biobanking was the term in those days. This is now biodiversity offsetting. Yep. Um, the difficulty that we have faced and what is pretty clear from this inquiry is that we just have not got the rules right. We haven't got the settings right. We haven't got the rules right. And we have been applying those rules so flexibly that there is actually no rigour, there's no integrity, there's no consistency, and most importantly, we're losing biodiversity. So it's a scheme that has actually been implemented. It's not fit for purpose. It's not achieving its aims. So we have made 19 recommendations. Uh, We believe that if all of these recommendations are implemented, including some of them immediately, then uh, the scheme could certainly have some effectiveness around it. There will always be, always be an underlying, um, you know, disagreement about whether you can offset biodiversity. But what we've found is that if we apply the rules that have been worked up over decades through international conventions and forums and lots of scientific work, if we apply the rules and There's some pretty basic rules. One is there are some things in nature you can't offset. For example, Mm. if something is critically endangered and it's on the brink of extinction, the answer is no. You can't destroy that and you can't offset that. Uh, The second rule is if you are going to offset something, it has to be offset by the same thing that you're destroying. It's a rule called like for like. Surely, surely, surely... And excuse my disbelief, surely those rules were already in place, were they not? They, they, seem, they seem that they would be the absolute pillars of any system such as this. Um, you would think so, Bruce. And uh, unfortunately, this is the fundamental basis as to why the scheme has failed and is failing and needs drastic reform. And look, let's face it, we know, uh, we know that these schemes and systems can be influenced by very, very powerful influences. So, for example, we know that we have seen over the past uh, decade, so and since 2016, since this scheme was introduced and prior to that, we've seen, um, you know, where large-scale development wants to go ahead, then it will go ahead regardless. And, and that's where this scheme has been uh, weakened, uh, manipulated and not applied according to these international standards and these basic rules. 
Greens MP Sue Higginson, who's chair of the Biodiversity Offsets Committee, uh, talking there to the ABC's Bruce McKenzie. Now, New South Wales Farmers Association, at least a couple of members, made submissions to the Upper House Inquiry, and uh, they found that the scheme was difficult for farmers to access, and also they found the process very costly, and they said there was too much bureaucratic red tape to wade through for farmers to uh, get involved in the Biodiversity Offset Scheme as it is at the moment or the system that's in place at the moment. So uh, that was the uh, that was the input from farmers there as well. 17 minutes past 12. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. The infant milk formula company Bubs Australia has taken out a national award for Best Australian Exporter. Bubs cracked the US market this year when there was a dramatic shortage of infant formula there and they have a significant footprint in the Chinese market as well. David Clawton spoke to CEO and founder Christy Carr this morning uh, after after they received the award in Canberra last night and she was very excited. We won. No, you're joking. We, uh, yeah, no, it was uh, quite overwhelming, really, with all those wonderful uh, Australian businesses in the room. But uh, we did. Bubs Australia won the Agribusiness Food and Beverage Award um, category, but also the overall Exporter of the Year. That is a big night. Does it come with a huge cash prize? Yeah, I don't know about that, but it comes with a very beautiful um, Dinosaur Designs um, award, so a a trophy, and uh, we have two of them, but they're the nicest trophies I've ever seen, so that's got to be added to the pool room. All right, so uh, it was a big night for you. Were Were there celebrations afterward? Absolutely, yes. We had a uh, we continued on and, and celebrated at Parliament House, but we also came back and had a little sneaky bottle of of champagne between the uh, between the executive leadership team to sort of reflect on the year that's just been. It has been an extraordinary year, wasn't it? Because because you were you you ended up filling this massive gap in the American market. It was, and. Uh, no, we really, uh, we really, um, I guess, had got our, you know, delivered our first chapter of growth in in China, and uh, everything had gone from strength to strength there after initial, you know, a very significant disruption in the early onset of the pandemic, and then in the last year we really saw an opportunity to accelerate our entrance into the American market, and uh, you know that was quite a unique period of time um, for the American infant formula category as it was spiralling into a crisis with uh, with a shortage of infant formula. So, so you were um, the first company, I think, globally, weren't you, to be given accreditation? We were the sell. first company globally to uh, to apply, and I think that's a true testament of, of Bub's uh, family's team's um, agility. So we were the first application in the world to be admitted, and we were the second um, manufacturer in the world to, um, to uh, be, um, I guess, accepted into the enforcement discretion policy. So, so how did now- that play out? Because I remember speaking to you, you know, when that was – you know that when you achieve that result, but we, but this, did you end up selling a lot of infant formulas for the US? 
Yeah, absolutely. We've just um, sent over our one millionth tin, actually. So um, it's been a quite a, a, a big couple of months, and we've uh, we've sold a large majority of that inventory that we've sent to the US uh, into all of the sort of big box retailers over there. So we're now arranged in six and a half thousand stores across forty two states, uh, and uh, yeah, just really see it as a as a long term opportunity. So we've uh, set up a team and an office in in Los Angeles and and uh, setting up the business for, for a long-term success. Wow. How many people employed at the company now? So far, 12 in America, um, 75 across the globe. So uh, we have also have offices in uh, in Shanghai and in Sydney and Melbourne. So and with so much product going to the States now, have you had to increase, you know, the, the, the base of, you know, your source material, the inputs? Uh, well, absolutely. So none of that sort of uh, accelerated growth had been forecasted. So we ne- really needed to call on all of our farmers and, and suppliers. And, and, you know, it certainly couldn't have been done if we didn't have our own manufacturing uh, facility down in down in uh, Victoria and Dandenong South. So we've, we've uh, been really operating there at full capacity, um, which is three shifts a day, 24-7 for the first few months to get that, um, the, to get that product produced. Uh, Produced and, and now we're just continuing to bring forward our forecast to supply that demand. And what about supplies? Where are you drawing from now? Um, so we're still all of our long-term um, supply partners, um, many of whom are based in, in Victoria from our um, dairy farmers. Um, but we work with uh, Australia's three largest dairy manufacturing um, companies, actually, uh, Fonterra, uh, Barra and, and Bega. Um, and we have, because we have three ranges of uh, infant formula products um, across three different milk sources, uh, organic goat milk and A2 protein um, milk as well. So, um, you know, we've, we've not only sort of diversified our markets, but we've also diversified our uh, product portfolio offering, which is very uh, helpful during these times where where supply chain is, um, you know, is is challenging. Christy Carr speaking there with David Clawton. The awards are handed out by the Australian Trade and Investment Commission and the Australian Chamber of Commerce. 23 past 12. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Women are to take centre stage at this year's Dorigo show with the spotlight firmly focused on female leadership in the agriculture sector. Its long-standing showgirl competition will also be replaced with a Young Woman of the Year award in an effort to reflect women's imperative role in the industry. ABC reporter Tina Tina Quinn spoke with the community events president Sally Duckett about this year's show, its first since the pandemic. Oh, it's pretty exciting really to be able to showcase everything that the district can offer and get all the visitors from far and wide to come and see what's on offer and there's lots of entertainment for them to do and see and hopefully the weather's all good and we'll have a good time. I guess what also marks this year's show as a special one is that the long-standing showgirl competition it's been replaced with a young woman of the year award what was behind that decision the, the showgirl competition obviously has quite a storied history behind it. Yeah, the showgirl competition's been going for over 50 years and the ASC um, decided that they wanted to change the name and make it a little bit more relevant to today's society. 
to modernise it in, yes, in essence. Yes, that's correct, yes. Yep. And can you tell us a little bit about this year's winner? She'll be the very first winner of the Young Woman of the Year Award. Uh, she is, yes. She's got a long family history of being associated with the show and currently Leah is a pharmacy assistant down in Coffs Harbour and she, she'll be here at the show with the other two girls that entered the competition and they'll be walking around and sashing winners and talking to the judges and they'll be re-announced at the Green Parade tomorrow. Fantastic. And this is Leah Sinclair, is it? Uh, yeah, correct. So the show's theme this year is women in agriculture, so you're really showcasing women on the land this year. Do you yep. think perceptions are, are starting to shift for women within the industry, which recognises their role not just as a support person, but as yep. leaders and, and managers? Yeah, definitely, because in the earlier years, the women always supported their husbands, doing little jobs around the farm and also raising a family. But in today's society, women are standing out on their own. They have their own business, either on the land or a a farming business in the towns and I think it's pretty important that we highlight those things and you know just show that women can be standalone people. Sally how long have you been involved with the Dorigo show? Uh, 32 years. I started off as a showgirl and after that I joined the committee and went from there and I've been 14 years as president now. So it's a, a very full circle journey for you then? It is, yes, yes. Well, how special. We wish you all the best this weekend for, for the Dorigo show, the first one in three yep. years. Yes, definitely. No, we're all looking forward to it. Dorigo show president Sally Ducker talking there to Tina Quinn. 26 minutes past 12 on the Country Hour. Shortly we'll get an update from the Premier. Some new announcements made in Condoblin today from Premier Dom- Dominic Perrottet. We'll hear about that shortly. But before we do that, this uh, cooler, wetter weather, well, it uh, probably doesn't trigger you to remember to put on the hat and the sunscreen. But if you're working outside on the farm, you do need to cover up. It's National Skin Cancer Action Week. And farmers are being reminded to do just that, put on the sunscreen and the hat because it's one of the industries most at risk. Even in a country like the UK, which is known for its overcast weather concerns, they were raised when a supermarket waitress had a Christmas ad that showed two farmers comparing their suntans. National Centre for Farmer Health AgriSafe Clinician and Registered Nurse Morna Simmons says it's a habit that many still need to uh, move away from. Look, I think there's a bit of variability. Some are quite motivated to be doing the right thing, what they know is the right thing. Most farmers know what they should be doing, but there are quite a few farmers still who probably really haven't set that habit. They they don't trigger a pattern in their life to um, do the slip-slop, slap-shade routine, which, you know, they've learnt from childhood. So it is variable. And I think if they have had an experience with someone in their family who's had a a brush with skin cancer, then their awareness heightens dramatically and quite quickly. Is there also getting into that habit of going and getting checks as well? Again, I think that's perhaps not routine for a lot of farmers. When I see farmers and look at their overall health with them, we frequently recommend that. Um, Some are doing it on a regular annual basis, which really they probably should be doing as part of an annual check given that they're outdoors a lot 
and for extensive periods of time. If they've got a family history, often they're more likely to do that. But yeah, we are prompting to do that regular checking with checking in with their GP is really important. But as well as that, with their optometrist is really important as well, because uh, UV exposure can actually increase the rate of quite a few eye conditions. So um, the the sunglasses thing is a really good form of PPE to use as well. Um, and even if you are using all the correct PPE and you're doing things well, there's a there's a range of conditions that. Uh, can develop in your eyes, so um, a regular check with your optometry, not just to see how see how well you see, um, but about overall eye health. Do you think these habits then, you know, they might get into a habit of it happening at work and they're, they're getting their sunscreen on and things like that. Are you finding that maybe those habits then don't flow into relaxation and, and you know, time at the beach and, and uh, you know, after harvest when they're uh, heading off on holiday? Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um, People just want to get away and have a bit of a break, so perhaps their routines aren't quite as in, ingrained in those settings, and historically they may not have thought about looking after their skin so much. Most farmers can remember quite vividly childhood burns, but when you think about how they're doing their sun protection on the farm as a routine, if you're in a different environment, it might not carry over. And the other thing to do is model that behaviour for your children because it's a whole family safety issue. You really look after, need to look after your health and the family of, of the, all of those working on the farm. Uh, quite a few years ago, farmers were sort of seen as the industry that was most at risk of, of skin cancers. Do you think that is still the case? My understanding is that's still the case. It used to be that um, they had a 60% higher rate of developing skin cancer. And uh, look, I think that's probably pretty similar. The highest rates are really in Australia and New Zealand. We've got the highest incident and mortality in the world and um, your risks of um, getting skin cancer before the age of 75 are, I think it's 1 in 24 if you're male and 1 in 34 if you're female. You're 5 to 10 times more likely to experience uh, radiation than indoor workers. So um, apparently 1,200 uh, 1, die a year, almost totally preventable. Mona, obviously with all this uh, weather that we're seeing right across the country at the moment, sunscreen's mm. probably the last thing that a lot of people are thinking of when it is uh, cold and wet. But why is it important to still be making sure to, to slip, slop, slap and all the, all the rest? Okay, well, uh, in Hamilton today, uh, if you look at the SunSmart app, which is a fantastic tool, it actually, even though it's quite cloudy and it's been drizzly most of the day today, uh, between 10.50 and 2 o'clock, it's recommended that you wear sunscreen. And in fact, when I first looked this morning, it said between those times, but I've noticed just at the moment that the UV rating is 10. In Adelaide, it's 11, and in Lee Creek, it's 12. So the UV rating varies according to where you are, but just because it's cloudy doesn't mean that there's no UV rating. And any UV rating three and above, you, you should be protecting yourself and putting on that sunscreen. That's the message, putting on the sunscreen. That's uh, Mourna Simmons, the National Centre for Farmers Health and AgriSafe clinician and a registered nurse as well. It's uh, coming up to uh, 29 minutes to one and uh, we're going to get some weather details. So looking at that system, that uh, that rain system that uh, could be uh, having an impact on Lismore. Watching that at the moment uh, in about a week's time. And um, someone who doesn't believe in slip-slop slap is... Uh, 
is Armstrong. I just, not that I yeah. don't believe yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm twisting your words again. Doesn't have what to worry about trying it. Trying to have me killed? No. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he's, you just don't go out in the sun. I just don't go yeah. out. Yeah, fair enough. Full stop. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. So. I had the I had a checkup just recently. It's yes, I, I I still go for the checkups mm. though. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. that's uh, that's an interesting process because because uh, of course it can be anywhere. Exactly, skin cancer can be anywhere. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. I had someone uh, run on their fingernail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ba- um, uh, underneath the on the bottom of their uh, feet. Yeah, as well, which yeah. is, would never have seen any sun, but mm. you do Nowhere. get skin cancers there. <laughs> yeah. Nowhere is safe. Mm, Less right. feet tanning has become a thing. So slip slop sack, Def- yeah. definitely a, a great message. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, and, and, I am in, and the hat. And I and fully hat agree with as it. well. Yeah, Just quite like right. To make that clear. <laughs> yes, quite <laughs> right. Sorry, <laughs> sorry to verbal you there. <laughs> What's uh, happening in the news? To the news, uh, they've just released uh, the inquiry into Scott Morrison's uh, self-appointments, just as Virginia Bell carried out the inquiry. It's it's literally just been released. Um, it's confirmed that Mr Morrison fundamentally undermined the government by secretly appointing himself uh, to joint minister for two five additional portfolios. Uh, just as Bell found the secrecy around the appointments was apt to undermine public confidence and trust in government. Uh, she's made six recommendations, including legislation to require public notice of all ministerial appointments. And actually, the Deputy Liberal Leader, Susan Lee, came out this morning and says uh, the opposition is prepared to support any legislative changes that the government does put forward. Fundamentally and, undermining government. Yeah, it's, it's pretty... Pretty strong language. Don't, don't yeah. hear that very often. No. So um, Anthony Albanese is uh, speaking about now uh, on the matter. So we'll see what he has to say. I won't interrupt your soccer match here. Is it Ghana? This, this, and, uh, somebody left this t- the TV on. It's an old match, though. I think this match Ghana is already this is already finished. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. All right. Mm. We'll continue. So I wasn't watching it. No, no, was, <laughs> the uh, Premier has announced uh, six new lifeline councillors will be stationed in the Central West as a result of the flooding out there. It's hoped they will help residents in flooded communities throughout the region access more psychological services. Uh, Iran has arrested a prominent member of its national soccer team over his criticism of the government. Uh, Iranian news agencies are reporting that Voria Ghaffori has been detained after he called for an end to the violent crackdown on protests in Iran. And it also followed the Iranian team's decision not to sing the national anthem before its opening game against England at the World Cup. And uh, if you've been suspended from Twitter, Elon Musk has granted you an amnesty. Mm. So, Michael, you're oh, okay. free to tweet again. Back on um, again. There yep. you go. He, uh, he uh, conducted a poll, very scientific, uh, <laughs> to vote on reinstatement for accounts that haven't broken the law or engaged in spam. The yes vote was 72%. And so the amnesty comes into force next week. Okay. There, there you go. go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not on the Twitter sphere. No. 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 Good place not to be. <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks for that. We'll talk to you. We'll hear you at one o'clock. Uh, we won't talk to you. We'll hear you at I'll one be, o'clock. Yes, yes. You'll be I'll, pontificating. I'll be talking, you just listen to <laughs> That's right. Okay. All right. Thanks for that, Adam. Adam's story there with the news headlines. It's uh, time to find out what's happening with the weather details. And Neil Fraser at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Yeah. Hi, Michael. Uh, just on the UV stuff. I yes. Just should throw in this common misconception you hear people saying oh it's going to be hot today better put on extra sunscreen Mm. and all that but the air temperature has nothing to do with it uv is uv whether it's you know 20 degrees or 40 degrees it doesn't Mm. the the clouds do diminish a little bit but still lots lots of uv get through the clouds so 
Yeah, but I hear it all the time at the golf club. They say, oh, it's, it's going to be hot today. I better put on more sunscreen. But no, should be, If it's sunny, you no. should put it on regardless. That's yeah, right. Yeah, 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 you can get badly sunburnt when it's 15. And wear the hat. So, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah everything. All the time, Good yeah. Good slap and whatever else. Slide, I think, slide on glasses. And yeah. and the long <laughs> sleeves as well. That's Big right. Big believer yeah. in the long yeah. sleeves. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, all of that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Now, that's anyway, a good point, actually, because mm. if it's sunny, it will, you will definitely get uh, oh, sun damage. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right. Mm. Yeah, that's a misconception in the community, I think, that mm. it depends on, yeah, hot days are worse than cool days, but mm. no, it, doesn't make any difference. So you're not just uh, anyway, you're not just always yeah. about the weather forecasting. <laughs> no. Well, it's well, we it's part of it, isn't it? Forecast. Yeah, it mm. is. So. Mm. Yes, but it's a very common misconception there. So. Well, it's part of the forecast these days, isn't it? The, the oh, UV ratings. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. and the, the Cancer Council love us to spruik it occasionally. So mm. I thought I'd throw it in. Yeah, today. no, so, good yeah. idea, especially this week yeah. being uh, being yeah, the week the farm to and that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You it's, bet. You bet. The sun is really really intense. Well, that's right, anyway. and and there's mm. quite a lot of sun around. There's water around, but sun around. So that's the thing that mm. uh, people are you know incongruous at the moment, but uh, definitely something to be aware of for sure. Yeah. Um, now, uh, so the, the the situation with the, the with the weather is is it going to be remain remain fine for a while? Do you think? Yes. Well, there's high pressure moving in across the southeast of the country, and it's going to move to the Tasman tomorrow. Fairly settled for today and tomorrow, but there's still the chance we'll see one or two showers and thunderstorms building up. And as I look at the radar now, there's something forming to the west of Coffs Harbour. So potential for some severe thunderstorms up around the mid-north coast northern rivers today maybe not so severe get to the hunter but there are yeah chances some showers right up and down the coast and the thunderstorms more likely in the north for tomorrow it, it eases off so still might be one or two showers about mid-north coast but generally no thunderstorms until you get way out in the far west there's a trough coming into the far west late tomorrow which may trigger one or two thunderstorms out through there but the main day is Sunday as that moves in across New South Wales, expecting fairly extensive areas of showers and possible thunderstorms. But the focus looks like being the southeast quarter of the state, so southern half of the central west going down to the south coast, all across the southeast there, including the central part of the coast, potentially some severe thunderstorms mixed in with that. And also there's another area in the north, some northern tablelands, northwest slopes and plains, the northern half of that, potentially some severe thunderstorms up through there as well for tomorrow uh, for Sunday sorry yeah. on Monday lots of showers up and down the coast and in the northeast but the severe thunderstorms look like being confined to the area north from the hunter so north, to north coast hunter northern tablelands and the northwest slopes and even into Tuesday that area contracts further north but still some showers and and potential thunderstorms around the northern coast and the northern tablelands area mm. and but looking at some of the modeling some of the mo- the the bureau modeling is different to what we're seeing on in some of the european models some of the european models are quite alarming about the amount of rainfall that may in- impact again on lismore maybe take us through some of that and what the yes. how you sort of weigh the european model versus some of the others well that's right we have yeah quite a collection of models and european model they run an ensemble too which they tweak the uh, initial conditions of models and run say 15 or 20 different versions of the model and the consensus is uh, quite a, a good indication of what might happen but at the moment as you mentioned the European model is a bit of an outlier but we can't discount it completely so mm. 
potentially Queensland and, and far northeast New South Wales could start copying it uh, next weekend or late so in it's, the week. Yeah, so it's next weekend we're talking, so more well, than seven of, days. Towards the end of the week. Yep. Yeah, well, yep. it's... Around it about be, seven days. Yeah, yep. yeah, it could be ramping up on Thursday, Friday. But uh, we have seen the European model get excited about things like this and then it backs off. So at this stage, we're just watching it and see how the models all behave. Mm. But uh, within usually within four days, you get a really good indication of what's going to happen. But, but, but it's good to be aware of it, though. It's good oh, to be aware right, yeah. that it's out there as a potential, oh, and right, it's similar yeah. to that system we saw, you know, seven or eight months ago. So it is something to watch. That's right, and we alert the SES to all these sort of things. Mm. So they're, yeah, they're aware that this could eventuate, mm. but uh, you, you don't want to get too alarmed this mm. far ahead, mm. but certainly be aware that it could start to happen again. So, unfortunately, we just can't turn off this precipitation. Mm, just, mm, that's right. That's the feature, it, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah, and, yeah. and the Bureau saying the latest uh, longer-term uh, modelling is looking, you know, all the way through summer. Mm, that's for right. For wetter yeah. than usual conditions. Yes. So the only good news, I think, is on the fire side of things. Mm. shouldn't be as much fire activity, but, yeah, opposed to that, all the flooding and thunderstorms and and potentially some of the thunderstorms could be quite nasty quite severe so i think last week or might have been last monday some giant hail up in queensland Mm. so it's very active at the moment and going to continue that way all right neil on that note uh, thanks for that have a good weekend okay yeah thanks michael it's coming up to uh 20 uh 19 minutes to one here on the new south wales country hour we're talking about the flooding in the New South Wales Premier and we heard it in the news headlines. Dominic Perrottet is in Condoblin today and uh, he made a few announcements about more support for affected communities. Uh, this includes more mental health workers, a commitment to road funding and he gave another warning to insurance company. He was uh, speaking to the media just a short time ago. There's no doubt there are significant challenges, particularly as well places like Condo uh, for our farmers and primary producers. We have grants of up to $75,000, but it's been a very difficult time uh, for our primary producers in circumstance. We've gone through drought um, and now into this significant flooding event, uh, which is putting significant pressure on our farmers. Um, and that's not just in Condo, that's right around the Central West and in other areas um, of New South Wales. Uh, this event is not over. As we can see here, it's going to take some time for the waters to recede, um, and then we'll, there'll be other challenges um, in other areas uh, of the state. Today we're announcing uh, extra support for Lifeline. Um, six new councillors coming out to the Central West to provide that care uh, and mental health support. It's been a very difficult time for everybody. Uh, it's been gruelling. There's many people who are tired, exhausted, emotional, um, and it's a long journey ahead. So we want to make sure that care and support is there, whether that's through Lifeline or our own mental health support staff coming out um, into those communities that have been affected, substantially affected by floods. The final point, so two other points I'd make uh, today is there's no doubt there's a significant challenge ahead uh, in relation to road and road infrastructure. I know councils have some capacity uh, but not complete capacity to get this job done. I've been speaking uh, with Sam Faraway, with the Treasurer in New South Wales, uh, to make sure uh, that uh, once we can actually come in here and fix roads, we will. That's going to help farmers, it's going to help communities, uh, whether it's potholes or roads that have been completely washed away. Um, Flood event after flood event uh, has made this an incredibly challenging task. 
uh, but we will be allocating the funding required to make sure we get our communities back on their feet as quickly as possible and ensure as well, we're not just talking about potholes here, we need to make sure, so we need to make sure that we rebuild in a more resilient way than before and that's most important. We can't just keep doing things the same old way. Uh, we know in the future these events will occur again. Now, this has been the biggest flood here in Condo since nine, bigger than the, the, the flood in 1952. And I'd say we don't have another flood like this in the short term, but we know in a country like Australia, these events will happen again. We, we can't do things the same old way as the past. We've got to make sure we build back stronger, and that's exactly what we'll do in Condo and right across the Central West uh, and everywhere in the state of New South Wales. Final point I'd make, I'm speaking to some people earlier today, uh, is to the insurance companies. Now, I'll be meet, obviously meeting with the Insurance Council uh, of Australia next week. We've had discussions already, uh, but uh, insurance companies need to put people before profits. They've got to make sure that every single person in the Central West is given the financial support that they need. Um, this is the opportunity uh, for those companies to step up, uh, just like everyone in this community has stepped up and looked after each other. My expectation is Insurance Council and the insurance industry will do exactly the same. New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet in Condobla making those uh, announcements about uh, more assistance there for those flood-affected communities. A quarter to one. Well, let's uh, turn our attention uh, to the west of the state. The region around Burke and western New South Wales is now cut off as a result of the record flooding there as well. Pastoralists and livestock producers have been forced to move livestock to higher ground and transport is pretty much at a standstill as well. I spoke earlier about the situation in and around the Burke region and western New South Wales with Agriculture Minister Dougal Saunders. Yeah, sure is. Look, I guess the thing about Burke, and, and I've been involved in several floods at Burke in, in my former role, the, the water has been known to be coming for quite some time. We've had evacuation orders in place for um, the Alice Edwards village and some of the other surrounding towns for a couple of weeks now. Um, the water level's at around about 13.95. That's significant. There's a lot of water around. Um, but people have had the opportunity to move stock to higher ground. Not that there's maybe huge amounts of mm. high ground in that particular part of the world, but people generally know where the water gets to and they will have moved stock out of that. Um, yes, the road um, is now cut. Um, there are areas that are isolated. Uh, a few travellers are being caught. I know that people that are, uh, are not aware that the road's cut and, and things haven't necessarily shown up yet. Uh, are being caught and having to stay a night somewhere they weren't expecting to. But all of that's manageable. And the, the town itself being cut off, it's not a complete disaster. We have a huge amount of support that's going in to keep, you know, regular supermarket deliveries happening in there with, with air support. Um, one thing I did, I, I spoke on local radio yesterday just reminding people, you don't need to panic by. There is supply there that will continue, particularly around things like toilet paper. We don't need a return to the COVID toilet paper days. All of that will continue to be supplied. We're supporting uh, with, uh, with animals as well if there are movements needed. We've done um, a bit of work at Burke with equipment, some shearers, a bit of fodder. Um, so all of that is available through our, our hotline to support people, and that's one 800 814-647 and people that need the, the help with groceries if they're a bit further out of town again it's through the SES or that 1800 number and all of that support will continue or medicine as well and and these floods can last a long long time weeks oh even months mm. I mean that, that's the reality um, if, if more water comes down the system then it, it could be a continual flood and sometimes you see basically an inland, inland lake between Burke and Warrena and further afield. So, you know, that, that's what possibly can happen. But again, people in that part of the world tend to be aware of how that will play out in their, in their area. So they do move stock. 
they do stock up, they're, they're prepared, but they also need to know that there is support there, particularly with livestock movements, with fodder drops, with medicine, with all the food they might need. There is support there 100% of the time. Um, that's the message we want to make sure people are aware of. Agriculture Minister Dougal Saunders, it's 12 to 1. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, there's been uh, quite a bit of talk around the livestock markets this week because cattle prices have continued to slide and uh, around about uh, 10% or more. The Eastern Young Cattle Indicator ending the week at 926 cents. That's down 115 cents compared to last month. The national trend was reflected at the biggest store sale with heavy cattle taking the biggest hit in prices. Josh Becker caught up with farmers and agents at the sale. Uh, Mark Swan. Um, Wyndham Lane, Tooftale, uh, Peter Sherman, Hillview, Toowoomba. Uh, Mark, what have you made of the store sale here today? The fat cattle seem to have come back a fair way, but young cattle have still got a lot of interest. But there's not as big a number, but I think people have got a lot of grass at the moment, so they're not getting rid of cattle. How significant is the drop in price that you've noticed? In the top end fat cattle, it's come down eight, seven, or $800 a beast. But the smaller cattle are still the same price. Is it an overall trend or a, a bit of a surprise? Uh, a bit of a surprise, but I think it's because of a lot of the wet weather out west, everywhere. Everyone's flooded in and, uh, I don't know, they just seem to drop away. And um, those big fat steers, I was talking to a mate and he, he said the grids come right back, so pretty hard to make dollars. And Mark, um, what are you looking for? Are you looking to buy cattle or, or sell here at this sale? I'm selling steers, but I'm trying to buy young cattle to eat grass. The problem, problem being that everyone has is that you can't get the numbers of cattle or sheep that you need at the moment. But when the floods subside in west and they flood the market with cheap cattle, it could affect all these markets. Because when they can get them out, they're going to have to get rid of them because there'll be no grass out there and there's no crop left. So that's going to make it a bit hard. Yeah, I'm Stuart Jenkins from Nutrient STL in, um, in Gippsland. Uh, Stuart, how many cattle have you picked up here at today at the oh, Bega about, sale? About 50 or 60 so far. Yeah, and what have you made of the sale? Oh, it's, it's cheaper. could be you know, two or $300 cheaper than what it was two months ago. What do you think's driving that? Oh, look, I think it's um, everywhere you go, it's the market's softer. And it's just you know, the fat market's softer. All the prices are coming back, so it's all relative. Yeah, so heavy steers in particular. What about the younger cattle? Look, it's probably the bigger cattle are probably taking the biggest fall, but then that's, that, there's, there's not a lot of feedlot competition here today. But you know, the in between cattle and the weanery cattle, they're still selling all right. You know, there's better some better sales than others. What do you think is going to happen in the outlook for the market? Well, Christmas is not that far away, and everybody seems to want to get their cattle gone before Christmas. So I think in the short term, it's just um, yeah, it's going to be what uh, what it's going to be. So there'll be more numbers coming onto the market, you reckon, in the month in the month ahead. Oh, I think most every, well, everybody's just, look, we've all been wet and everybody's woken up. There's only six weeks to Christmas, so I want to do something. So, What about the outlook with um, the, all the flooding that we've seen across New South Wales and Victoria? Does, is there a bit of uncertainty about, you know, whether there'll be a, a, a run of cattle coming into the market in the, in the month ahead after people are able to get cattle away? Well, that's all the unknown. Like, uh, it, like we thought the cattle were going to start to run in sort of end of September, early October, and here we are, the end of November, and we're in the same boat. But the wet, the wet weather's held a lot of, lot of stock up, and we don't know when they're going to come, if they're going to come, and what they're going to be like. So, but 
yeah, when you get into the new year, well, obviously all the Western District sales will start. You know, there's a lot of failed crop, so there's going to be a lot of grain around that's not going to make export quality, so there'll be a lot of feed grain. So just depends on what you can do at the other end when you go to sell it. So and it'll all, it's all relative to what you what the end product that they can get for it, and it'll work its way back down the food chain from there. Livestock agent Stuart Jenkins at Nutri- Nutrien SGL in Gippsland, ending that report from Josh Becker. Well, uh, a surge in supply and a lull in demand is taking a toll on the store lamb market. Prices at Wagga Wagga sale yards dipped yesterday with more than 30,000 lambs being penned. Cara Jeffrey went along and spoke to Wagga Wagga Livestock Manager and Auctioneer Peter Cabot to find out more about the softer market. The lamb market was very good again today. Last week we saw a big lift in prices and uh, it, it stayed reasonably uh, firm on, on last week's rate. Your heavy lambs were, were fully firm on last week's really good prices and um, your very good quality trade lambs were, were also about the same. Your secondary quality trade lambs were cheaper today, probably five or ten cheaper, and your store lambs, uh, your store lambs were cheaper last week and then cheaper again today. There's a lot of store lambs coming through and the store lambs here today might have been 5 to 15 cheaper. So a, another big drop because they were 10 cheaper last week. So all of a sudden there's a, there's a lot of store lambs on the market. There's a lot of lucent country I think that's been underwater and um, the demand's just not there at this stage and, and store lambs are realistically, a store lamb is probably 50 or $60 cheaper than it was last year. And looking at the uh, numbers, there were over uh, 45,000 head in today, over 30,000 lambs and over 12,000 sheep. So is is that where you'd expect numbers to be this time of year? Yes, I think it is. For the next couple of weeks, we've only got three or four more sales. We've only got three sales uh, until we have the Christmas break. So I would imagine they'd yard, yeah, look, close to 50,000 for those three weeks like we did today. We had about 50 last week and then then the previous couple of weeks we had those really big sales of... you know, had one of 87,000, I think. So I think those really big numbers are gone. Yeah, I, I can see Wagga yarding, you know, 40 or 50,000 for the next three weeks. Are the floods and the wet weather dictating where sheep are coming from into the sale? Not really. The, the Wagga catchment area, as you know, is a very big area and we get a lot of stock from everywhere. Um, and where we're getting our stock from at the moment is, is pretty typical of where we get it at, at, at the start of summer. Like We get a lot of those eastern lambs now. Um, we've sold a lot of the western lambs, though anyone out that side of town's probably shorn them, the ones that they're going to keep, whereas we're getting a lot from the east now where they're, they're a lot fresher and, um, and some better quality lambs. So, and that's normal for this time of year. So let's look at the bigger picture in regards to the prices of sheep and cattle. Looking at the livestock markets this week, Tim McRae says the market fell, but he thinks the long-term demand and price trend for red meat should be strong. I think it's a case of very much that we have. I think there's still a lot of buyers. There's going to be a lot of people out there with a lot of grass. And you know, at the moment, if you're not sure how your boundary fences are faring, you're probably holding out of the market all good analysis is pointing to this market continuing to come back so if you are looking to buying you're probably looking at the market and just waiting i mean you know it's probably a bit like the housing market at the moment if things are falling and you you still want to buy you might just wait to see what happens next week if it's um if the price is going to be down so i think there's a lot of buyers on the sideline sitting and watching um and at the same point i think there's the sellers have, have taken the the momentum and the drier some drier conditions in some areas to really get stock in because um there's always bills to be paid and there's always income need to be made. But I guess there is a concern that there's there could be a pinch in some of those central western areas 
with a lack of pasture as the floods subside. But, I mean, that, that will only be a transitory thing, won't it? Yeah, look, I think for those areas, you know, that have been devastated with the flooding, I think it's, you know, weeks until they really do figure out which way they're facing and, and what they're able to do, you know, pretty much, you know, in early 23 is going to start to give them the idea there. But, you know, I still think there's far more areas that are flush with feed. Um, and I think in that context, we're back to the access issue and, you know, we continue to see on, on search and on our assessment criteria with Auctions Plus of people looking to can they actually get the cattle they are purchasing to where they need them. So I think that's still a major consideration and you put on top of that all the road and access issues and, you know, there's plenty of potholes out there and plenty of road restriction limits. I, I still think that's a major constraint from the buying side. So again, sit back and wait and just, just see how things shake out. So hold back, wait and see, wait for the potholes to get fixed a bit so the B doubles can get back out there. I don't think they I don't think people can wait for the potholes to be fixed twenty twenty six by then. But you know, I just I just think, you know, it's a it's a very typical market, whether it's livestock or the stock market or the housing market, you know, when there is some, some downward pressure, um, we see people people are more willing to be patient if there's the potential that it may fall further. Now I think we we will see a lot of sellers particularly decide, well, I don't like the price and I can hold. And, you know, in a season like this, there's um, there's certainly no feed-based pressure for people to get stock in. It's more of an income and cash flow question. And we're hearing the US, uh, their herd's going to be down. They're going to need to buy. They won't be exporting as much. The global price is set to rise in the next year or 24 months. Look, the long-term outlook, and, you know, plenty of producers have heard this for a long time, the, you know, the long-term outlook is very bright for Australian red meat. Um However, there's, you know, there's sort of one choke point in the middle, which is the processing sector. And, um, you know, I think that's really going to weigh heavily on the industry next year. With, we've seen the rebuild. We're going to see more numbers coming through. They're going to be much heavier than normal. They're going to be coming off some, some pretty good conditions. Um, you know, how is our processing industry shaping up to be able to, you know, put those numbers through is going to be the real big question and I think going to be the real um, restraint on the industry to just, just see where prices go. And have we seen the sheep and lamb market softer too? Yeah, look, it's back again this week. Um, and again, very similar. Um, I think the bigger thing hanging over the lamb and sheep is the welfare side of things. And, you know, I know, um, you know shearing and all that kind of stuff is going to weigh very heavily through another wet winter. Um, producers have gone through it two to three years already. I don't think a lot of them want to go through um, you know, dealing with flies and all that again if they, if they don't have to. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot of buyers there being very cautious, but for management reasons more than price reasons. Tim McRae talking there. Let's go to Griffith's Sheep and Lambs now. Good afternoon. Less lambs with just 3,000, but more sheep at 4,000 head. Apart from a few pens, it was a scrappy yarding as the last unshorn suckers come through, and agents did lead most of their runs with recently shorn lambs. Prices continued to diverge based around weight and quality, with the heavier and better presented lambs firm to dearer, while plain trades and stores were cheaper. Some light suckers were passed in. Any heavy lambs above 27 kilos carcass weight were strongly supported amid limited numbers and made from $230 to a top of $260. The better finished 24 to 26 kilos, $200 to $221. Where the market quickly lost momentum was on the plain of trade lambs, 20 to 22 kilos and store lambs. Plain domestic weights, $125 to $170. Small store lambs, 80 to 112 
The sheep sale lacked buyer demand and was ten to twenty dollars cheaper. The heaviest crossbred and merino used one thirty to a top of one fifty five. The general run of light and medium type sheep seventy to one hundred and twenty dollars. Jenny Kelly for MLA. You've been listening to the Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to news time, and one o'clock.